Welcome to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast, brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. This podcast is presented by Dr. Derek Mahoney, an orthodontist who has lectured in over 120 countries about early intervention orthodontics, something that has a profound impact on sleep health. Dr. Mahoney says his passion is helping young people achieve a better life through better sleep. In this podcast, he will be speaking to the world's leading medical minds about all things kids' sleep health. So tune in, because the secret to kids' sleep might be right under their nose. So welcome back, everyone, to this week's um, podcast. I would like to introduce Dr. Tracy Newen, who maintains a uh, private practice uh, 30 minutes out of Washington, D.C., in Northern Virginia. In 2015, uh, Dr. Newen was accredited by the American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry. And in 2016, she was honored with the top 25 women in dentistry by Dental Products Magazine. Uh, Also in 2016, she finished her graduate training at the prestigious Coist Center in Seattle, Washington. She's one of the key opinion leaders in the Wellness Dentistry Network. And the focus of that organization is to merge the gaps between medicine and dentistry and understand the oral systemic connection. So in 2016, which obviously was a very busy year for you, Tracy, (laughs) uh, she developed the Sleep and Airway Group, which is a local uh, interdisciplinary group of doctors of various specialties. Uh, She advocates dentistry's role in treating patients with dental malocclusions that are comorbid with airway and sleep issues. So Stacey's uh, goal is to create an awareness of the dental intervention strategies available to her peers and to her community. Uh, In 2020, she co-founded ASAP, which I like that, it's a very good acronym because if you want to act on a kid's airway, when's the best time to do it? ASAP. That's fantastic. And and ASAP uh, stands for Airway, Sleep and Pediatric Pathway. It's an online mini residency um, uh, for pediatric dental sleep medicine. Her social media platform brings clinicians all over the world together for a common cause. And Stacey's mission is to develop a better understanding for the complexities of the disease and bring like-minded professions together to co-diagnose and treat. And I think your CV says it's all, uh, uh, Tracy. I mean, if we're going to help these kids and help the parents, it really is a multidisciplinary um, situation where we need to work with our colleagues, e-nose and throat doctors, sleep physicians, uh, the dentist doing good quality, arch development, uh, etc. Can I start the uh, podcast by just asking you, um, how did you get started uh, on this journey? Well, um, interesting. I mean, as you can tell, like my biggest, I'm a restorative dentist. So my biggest thing really was not into airway, it was more into cosmetics. Um, when I met um, one of my mentors, Jeff Rouse, um, he introduced me to this concept of airway dentistry. And, you know, through our dentistry, we can either improve or make the airway worse. And I loved his approach and how he educated um, dentists because it really focused more on our dentistry. And when I realized how important it was, you can see in 2016, I went 110%. I felt like this field, not many people understood. 
there wasn't much research in. Um, there wasn't much support from the dental community. Um, and so I felt that there was um, a need to educate. And that's when I made my Facebook page public. And I started posting articles, peer reviews, and just started reaching out to people. And it was crazy because I didn't realize how many people started to get interested, you know? And so, and that's just kind of how it skyrocketed. I mean, more and more people were asking me questions like, Tracy, that's really interesting. Tell me more. Um, and, and that's kind of where I am today. I mean, my practice is still, um, it's, it's still a family practice, but it's very centered on um, airway management and dental intervention strategies for all ages. Um, and can I just, I mean, I, I read out what um, ASAP stands for, but can you tell me a little bit more about that organization? Yeah, so um, it started with um, me and my two partners, Stacey Ochoa and uh, Michelle Weddle. And when we went on this journey for pediatrics, we realized that there were all these little courses and we needed to understand more. Um, and then we decided, you know what, why don't we put a course together and teach all the things we wish was taught to us <laughs> and really teach um, interdisciplinary care. Um, and so that's what, AS, uh, well, that's what ASAP is. Um, we decided that, you know, the only way this is going to work is if we develop a platform that encourages growth and mentorship and understanding interdisciplinary care, understanding everybody's role. Because um, all the programs out there was really just to teach one system. And what we realized in our journey in treating these kids was there's so many different things we need to look at. And we, the only way that we can do these kids justice is if we really understand all the roles that different people have play in it. And so that's what ASAP is about. Um, you know, it's funny, we call it a mini residency, but we really believe that it's more of like, we teach you the basics of sleep first. And we, and I felt like as a, as a restorative dentist, I didn't understand that, you know? So that was the first thing that we did was we taught the basics of sleep. Then the next step was all the different procedures out there. What I love about ASAP is we're not a company-based program, so we're open to all treatment plans. And I think it's important to understand all treatment plans because that's how we, you know, diagnose and make these treatment plans and what's available. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have, we invite, um, you know, we ha each month we have um, a key opinion leader coming. I mean, we were talking about David Gazal, so he's talking to our group next year, and we're excited about that. Um, it's you know, again, it's really more about mentorship and support and going through these cases. I'm giving dentists the tools that we they need to talk to other physicians um, and other um, professionals to treat, our, you know, our kids. And I think, you know, I get many young dentists, and I'm sure you do, that um, want to know uh, what is the future and uh, what should they be learning. I, I think the more and more we look at all our uh, multidisciplinary uh, connections and all the different uh, specialties in dentistry, we realize there's one common thing, and that's the airway. Uh, and I think that the Coise Academy has done amazing things in that regard. I remember reading uh, a couple of years ago, Dr. Roos's uh, classical paper, I think he called it um, the uh, the three comorbidities associated with bruxism. Uh -huh. uh, and it, it, it made myself uh, as, a, as an orthodontist who has patients who, who brux, 
maybe look um, outside the box and say, you know, why are they bruxing? And uh, after reading that paper, I, I always said to myself, if I give someone just a splint and I don't really find out why they're bruxing, I know they're going to brux through that splint, right? So it's like um, if we see someone hitting their head against a brick wall and we come over and give them a pillow just to kind of, you know, cushion the blow, we're not really getting to why they're hitting the head against the brick wall. So can I, can I ask you another important question? Where do you see the future of dentistry? Um, well, pretty much just like what you said. I mean, I, I would like to see more dentists um, collaborate um, with other medical professionals, really understand the oral systemic connection. I mean, as much as I love cosmetic dentistry, we, we, we have to understand what the body can do to our dentistry. And at the same time, what our dentistry can do to the body. You know, and I think that when we become very um, one-sided and narrow-minded into thinking just dentistry, we forget the big picture. We forget the, the face, the soul, the body behind the mouth. Um, so what I'd like to see, and, I, and I, I, think the, I think we're moving in that direction, is where when we look at this mouth, we look at the patient and we go back to the medical history. Because I think many a times we bypass that medical history and go straight to the restorative and the, the aesthetics. Um, so my hope is that we take a little bit more time into that medical history and then having a more careful evaluation of our dentistry. Um, one thing Jeff Rouse um, says very well, and he's, he's um, doing this at Spear, is he's saying, is your treatment... Um, airway positive, negative, or neutral. And I think that's amazing because you can kind of decide how you want to treat this. Um, so I think it's very important. Or I like to see the dental community really honing in on the uh, medical connection and really taking ownership of what our dentistry can do. I think too many times we want to take our hands off and say, well, that's not, my dentistry didn't do that. And of course, it's humbling and, you know, probably he, most people don't want to admit that their dentistry could potentially make the airway worse. And I think that's something that we really should be thinking about. I know uh, I graduated 35 years ago and my classical training in orthodontics was wait till the kids were permanent dentition, like 12 or 13. Any crowding, we just rip out premolar teeth and then I do... Uh, what I now understand is retractive orthodontics. You know, we'd uh, line up all the teeth, uh, but we'd pull them back, which compromised space for the tongue, uh, facial aesthetics, put more load on the joint, you know, all the things I was never taught in dental school. Um, now that I have a more airway-focused approach to orthodontics, which is my specialty, I, I say to parents, look, um, if you're just looking for me to line up your teeth and not look at deeper issues like your kids sleep and their airway, it's a bit like me uh, lining up the deck chairs on the Titanic. You know, I mean, it's, it's really of, of no benefit. Um, and um, can I ask you, um, when it comes to a, uh, a parent uh, who uh, is wanting to know more about certain uh, problems their child is having, let's call it uh, a hyperactivity disorder or not doing well at school, you were talking about Dr. Ghazal's research, which really shows the neurocognitive uh, performance problems associated with kids who have these airway problems. What, what are the sort of 
uh, signs or symptoms a parent would look for in their kid that would make them possibly want to consult someone like you? So the biggest thing with children is the neurocognitive consequences. Um, and I think the, you know, parents have to kind of, there's, it's interesting because there's a lot of times when we look at certain behaviors and we, uh, we knock it off as age, you know, like, oh, my child is three. This is how a three-year-old's supposed to act. Yeah. Well, if that three-year-old has the same behavior at eight, is that really how an eight-year-old should act? And, and I think for parents, they, they kind of just have to trust their gut on what they feel that their child is normal and what they consider maybe normal. Um, I know for me, um, I usually, I let the parents fill out the pediatric questionnaire and they will come to me when they feel like something isn't right. But the neurocognitive is a big one. And I think there's a lot of studies today that look at ADHD, look at depression and anxiety, and we and we're finding that it correlates to sleep. Um, I think what I tell parents is like, look, as adults, because we know what our normal is, we know if we are not feeling great on a day, we know we had the, the day before was either bad sleep or we didn't eat very well. We know how to blame something because we know what our normal is. With children, children don't have a normal because they, ha they haven't lived long enough to know what a normal life is. So for children to act out, they just act out, but they don't know how to rationalize their behavior. And those are things I tell parents is like, it's, it's very different because children will be a certain way and they will stay that certain way. And that to them is their normal. And when we start to look at that behavior and then accept that to be their normal, then we unfortunately label that that child's new normal and once you label that child's new normal as hyperactive ADHD you go down a slippery slope with meds and medication so typically what I tell parents is do you really think this is his natural behavior and if this is his natural behavior at three let me ask you is this an acceptable behavior at nine and I think that's kind of when parents kind of get it. They're like, okay, I get it. Then let's, and unfortunately, some parents will wait to see the behaviors get worse. And unfortunately, in medicine, like, you don't get brownie points for prevention, you know? Yeah, exactly. it, you know it's not until it gets really bad. Um, and that's what I tell parents. It's like, you know, I'm here when you are ready. You know, I'm here when you think that little Johnny isn't behaving fine, Um I can't tell you what prevention is going to do, but I can tell you what I see. And these are early signs of neurocognitive consequences. I know uh, from, from the Australian experience, um, we are a very affluent country. We have a very good healthcare system, yet we have uh, one of the highest teenage suicides in the world. Um, we have one of the highest uses of Ritalin than any other uh, country per capita. Uh, and it really saddens me that so many kids are misdiagnosed with ADHD. I mean, there is definitely a, a genuine condition, uh, uh, but there's a lot of um, uh, people who put a child on meds just from asking a couple of questions. And really, I think in, in Australia, I see many of the teachers are pushing for this because, you know, they want that kid to be, in a word, kind of... Uh, uh, sedated and not be the disruptive kid in the class. And so uh, I just feel it's really important for parents to understand 
the true diagnosis of ADHD can't be made unless they do a pediatric sleep study. And, uh, yeah. uh, and this is important. Uh, um, can, can I ask you for a dentist, you know, who wants to learn more about pediatric sleep medicine? In other words, um, when I give lectures to dentists and I start talking about the consequence of bruxism in children, uh, and how it's related to the airway, they think, oh, my God, we just thought the kid was highly stressed. And I said, are you kidding me? This kid's three years old, right? Yeah. Um, can, can, I, can I ask you two sort of questions? One is your thoughts on bruxism in children, causes, consequences, treatment. And the second is where can a general dentist who obviously sees these kids and sees the wear facets on their teeth, where can they learn more about uh, pediatric dental sleep medicine? So as in... Bruxism, I think I even, so I do a lot of literature reviews on my page and my page uh, on Facebook and Instagram is public. So anybody can join, anybody can watch. And um, I'm constantly reviewing literature and topics on there. So that's like an easy resource. Um, I did one on bruxism and because there's a lot of new studies looking at bruxism. And I think what's happened, well, we have a lot of studies that show with bruxism, when you took the tonsils and adenoids out, the bruxism got better. Um, and then we also, there are also studies looking at that when they look at obstructive sleep apnea, um, different variations of severity affects bruxism. And so I think that's where the literature is all over the map because it's, um, it, it doesn't tell you like if apnea directly causes bruxism, but what I am seeing and is that, I see bruxism as a form of compensation for an airway issue. Um, I find that these kids, I mean, the tongue has only two ways to, two places to go, either back of the throat or out the mouth. And the jaw is, is if the tongue and the jaw drops back and everything's plugged up in the back, your body is going to, the brain is going to try to signal you to open up your airway. I think what happens is with children, because their body is so reactive and it's a good and a negative, um, the body will compensate for this airway at the cost of teeth. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think what happens is as the body breaks down, as the, um, you actually brux less um, because the body's already broken down, can't protect you yet. So depending on where you see that child, I think every child that brooks has some form of sleep disturbance. We just don't know to what extent, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's the, the argument that people have is like, oh, bruxism isn't caused by sleep. I said, I think there, I think many physicians will agree, even based on sleep studies, that people with fragmented sleep have some form of erratic jaw movement. Yeah. It's just a matter of how much. And I think if you look at some of the studies, uh, when you sleep on your side and they measure bruxism, it reduces. So, you know, there's a link there. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're on CPAP, it reduces bruxism. So if bruxism has no correlation with, uh, you know, with airway, how, how come those studies? So you know, there's lots of things in that regard. Um, exactly. And um, what would be, because parents always want to know this question. So they're always very grateful that maybe you've picked up a sleep disorder in the child after the sleep study and after the proper consultation with the pediatric sleep physician. But one of the unfortunate things we have in Australia here, a lot of the sleep physicians literally only have one panacea for treatment of these kids, and that's to yes. put them on CPAP, right? Yes, uh, yeah. can, can, you, can you talk to, from a parent point of view, and also, I guess, from what a dentist should be learning, 
what would be your treatment strategy once you pick up a seven-year-old that has um, moderate to severe sleep apnea? What's amazing about this field is dentists, there's a lot of malocclusion that are high risk factors for sleep. And so when we have a child with sleep disorder breathing, I mean, there's malocclusion to be treated. That being said, I think um, treatment varies on age and also goals. So, for example, I'll have discussions with my orthodontist about treating like a five-year-old that has um, sleep disorder breathing. And the argument will be, well, we can correct this malocclusion when the child's later. And they're absolutely right. You can correct deep bites later because the mandible you know, lags. But the but you have a child suffering from sleep disorder breathing. So your goals should be to maintain airway patency. It shouldn't be to correct the malocclusion. But as dentists, we can manipulate the draws with appliance therapy or different therapies to keep the airway patent. So it's two different goals. And I think as dentists, we have to put a different hat in because I think we're always thinking occlusion, teeth, you know, predictability, long term. Um, whereas when we think like a, a doctors, it's all about saving a life. A doctor will put a CPAP in a kid and not worry at all about the, the retractiveness on a CPAP. Why? Because the child needs a CPAP to breathe. You know, and I think as orthodontists and as dentists, we have to think about that. What we do, we can fix later, but right now you have a child that's in distress. What can you do to keep the airway patent? Um, And that's something that we stress a lot. You know, when I speak to other colleagues, it's like, okay, I understand the treatment may relapse. The treatment may need to be redone over. That is fine. But the option to do nothing is not an option because a, a, a physician would never say, no, you shouldn't wear a CPAP because it's going to retract your face. The physician's always going to say, wear a CPAP so you can breathe. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I, I always tell my colleagues, it's like, we have to think like physicians. We have to not think in that our treatment has to last for the rest of, has to be perfect for the rest of the patient's life your treatment has to be appropriate for that moment, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Can, can I ask you, um, I find that a lot of these kids, once I look in their mouth, tend to have a very high palate, um, uh-huh. uh, may or may not have crossbite. And uh, one of the things that um, I always talk to my colleagues about is if there's an airway problem with a high palate, you know, you don't need a crossbite to expand it because a lot of people who did the orthorhinic training I did, we were only taught to expand the jaw if there was a crossbite, right? Yeah. Uh, now I realize that that uh, palatal vault, even with uh, no crossbite, is a compensation for um, uh, an airway problem. Can you talk us through, uh, uh, from a parent point of view, what would be a good age to expand? Is it is it too early at, for a two or three year old? Is it too late for a fourteen year old? Uh, I think a lot of parents get the uh, link between widening the jaw and improving the nasal uh, airway. But what about timing with that? So it's a very exciting time right now because we don't have a lot of literature that looks at treating children under the age of six with orthodontics. You know, because most of our literature looks at teeth. Like, what are the teeth going to be like? Are the teeth going to be stable? 
my hope is that now that we're actually focused on airway management and improvement in airway management, we'll have better systems um, for expanding children. Um, I think the thing is right now with children at the age of six, it's tough to say, I feel like at the age of six, almost anything, even three, four, almost anything will work. You know, and the problem is because we don't have literature that looks at if I expand with Invisalign, if I expand with a preformed appliance, if I expand with, um, you know, a rapid palate expander on a four-year-old, which one is the best? We don't know. We don't know when we look at which one's the best for breathing. But I do find that you have to do something. Um, and I think that just like you said, if you have a child with a high narrow arch, we know that high, we know high narrow arches is a risk factor. I mean, for all age groups, you know, we, we know that the maxilla, a retronathic maxilla in adults is a risk factor. So I think there's something to be said. It's again, it boils down to kind of like prevention um, and treating these kids that are really young. The kids that are most symptomatic with obstructive sleep apnea is two to eight. So the thing is, what I'd love to see is we have to look at orthodontics in the ages of two to eight, because like if that's the group that's most affected and that's the group that's going to get a CPAP, then you're you're addressing these kids post CPAP. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I just had a kid that's been on a CPAP at the age of four for a year. And of course, she's now she's class three. None the parents did not look like that. You know, so I always I tell orthodontists like, okay, if you don't want to treat them now, you're going to be treating them later. But the problem is treating them later is the child has suffered a couple years and the neurocognitive consequences you don't get back or you don't know if you're going to get back. So, again, for me, I I look at it as I think doing anything is better than nothing, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. just to keep that airway patent. I feel like if you keep that airway patent, you reduce the risk of neurocognitive consequences. You improve the oxygen flow to the brain. Um, What happens to the teeth? I don't know. And I don't care because they're so young. We have amazing orthodontics that can fix that later. It's, It's about keeping that airway patent now. And I think that's an important message for parents because many parents, when they view orthodontics, they view it as, well, we want to do this just once. Right? Yes. Uh, and and I have to say to them, uh, I do a lot of phase ones, you know, seven to nine-year-olds where I can develop the upper jaw. I can use a face mask to bring the upper jaw forward. We can really improve the severe class twos, you know, because the kid has so much growth at that age. But I always say to the parents, when and all the adult teeth are up, we may still need to do some tidying up. But our goals are different. Our goals yes. at this age are related to the child's face and their growth and their airway and their TMJ. Our goals when they have their adult teeth is to line them up. But I can tell you those people who've undergone very good comprehensive phase one intervention hardly need uh, comprehensive orthorhynx later. And they're the cases you just tidy up with a couple of aligners. So, but it's very hard for parents. And I'm not sure about the United States, but in Australia, the health funds uh, or what we call the insurance don't make it any easier because for uh, general dentistry, you can get a filling on a tooth every year, the same tooth, right? And you get a mm-hmm. rebate. But with orthodontics, all the health funds have this thing called a lifetime cover, right? Yeah. So, so parents look at that. They speak to an older school orthodontist who's saying, you're crazy. 
your kid's too young, wait till they're 14. You know, yep. these are the same guys that are going to pull those teeth out, right? And the parents, if they're looking at it from a financial point of view, they're going to say, right, well, it makes sense. My, you know, when I was a kid and when my uh, granddad was a kid, we all had orthodontics when we were in high school. What's this new deal and how come uh, there's no guarantee I'm not going to need work later? So I think uh, that's a, we, we were talking earlier about what are some of the challenges of implementing this type of treatment into your practice, right? Um, and I think for a dentist, uh, one of the challenges, talking to the parent about how there is going to be possible follow-up treatment later, but that treatment will be uh, uh, not as invasive, uh, not as comprehensive required because of what we've done. Can I ask you, um, for a dentist who wants to learn more, and I'm thoroughly recommend that they join your ASAP online residency because it's, it's one of the few residencies that's actually evidence-based. Uh, I've listened to a lot of people speak, they're passionate, but they really make some statements with nothing to support it, right? And yeah. um, if, if, you know, if you have a, a discerning parent who wants to say, well, you know, is there any scientific study on that? Uh, if your dental regulator says to you, hey, why are you doing this? You know, and you can't say, well, because uh, that guru over in the USA told me to do it, okay? Yeah. Um, so so can, can I ask you, from a general dental point of view, who's someone who's heard this, has hundreds of patients now that they're looking who have these problems, um, how can they implement this type of treatment in their office? And secondly, what are some of the challenges they will face? So, um, you know, I would say I'm partial to ASAP. And one of my biggest things at ASAP is evidence-based. Um, and that is centered from just my training at the Koi Center. Everything I do in dentistry has to be backed up by evidence. But at the same time, I have to recognize um, what evidence is not available. And just because there's lack of evidence doesn't mean that you shouldn't treat either. So it's, you know, what we try to do with ASAP is we try to really walk the dentist through the thought process and actually understand what they're treating and to they need to be able to validate and support what they're treating based on the evidence that's available. So I agree with you. That's hundred percent important um, for parents. Um, I think it's very important for us to be very honest with the parents on our goals. Just like you said, um, patient burnout is a big thing. Um, and I think I can respect a lot of, so in the U S the average orthodontic coverage is, um, $2,000. And yet that's a lifetime. Um, some orthodontic coverages don't even cover children under the age of six. And the reality is that a child that has a sleep and breathing problem under the age of six, you're going to have to cough out X amount. Now you think this child has a genetic component. Both parents are class threes or class twos. You're going to be fighting that growth and development in the next six years. You know, and there's so many things that we don't have control over, you know, the environment, the genetic component. Um, so definitely burnout is serious. Definitely funds are um, serious. Um, but I, I find that parents that understand the risk and understand what they are seeing in their child, um, they're going to go through the treatment, you know, and it's, I always tell parents, it's, you know, you're going to come to me when you are ready. Um, I don't need to sell you on treatment for your child. I don't want to do that because just like you said, 
Um, the treatment is lifelong with when it comes to growth and development, anything can happen. I mean, we're still learning now things with the joint, you know, like we don't even have a lot of research on joint damage on kids. So um, there's definitely a struggle with burning the patients out, but I feel like if dentists are very honest with a patient and dentists have a team to support them, like the medical community to support them, um, it, it, it's going to be fine. I mean, if you think about an ENT perspective, the ENT takes the tonsils and adenoids out and nobody has yelled at an ENT for symptoms coming back. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just acceptable. Like, but, and I don't know why we put such a, I think dentists are harder on ourselves about that. It's, you know, they just put the child in a life threatening procedure and it grows back, you know, or symptoms come back. And I think as dentists, we have to really think like the medical community and, you know, we're, we, um, John Coyce always says to us, we don't need to be the Coast Guard. You know, we're not, you, we cannot, we should not be saying that we're curing apnea. We're, we're all managing this disease and we have to just do it together. Um, but that's one of the things that we try to do at ASAP when we teach our dentists. We're like, we want to just be there to support you. And, and the crazy is some of these kids, I mean, as a general practice, you have the kid in your practice for 10, 20 years. So you're following these cases. Um, I find that the parents that have sleep apnea understand it the best because yeah. they see they see the disease in them and they see it in their children. Um, those parents, you don't have to give them any information. They get it. Yeah. Um, you know, the other ones, I, I, tell my, I, I tell our students, it's like parents will come to you when they're ready. All we have to do is just educate and let them come to you when they're when they're ready. Yeah, perfect. And yeah. you know, um, I take my hat off to you as a pediatric dentist who's gone further and really uh, learned so much about early orthodontics. Um, unfortunately, the Australian and New Zealand experience, um, most pediatric dentists uh, are dealing with kids that no one else wants to deal with. Number one, uh, you know, and what they're really good at is general anesthesia and the kid gets you know four or five stainless steel crowns uh all in one go and the focus is all restorative 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 and yet no one's looking at the airway in these kids uh no one's uh doing early into i mean my understanding of um u.s statistics pediatric dentists probably do as much early receptive orthodontic treatment as the orthodontist which is a great thing because you see the kids you see the kids at the appropriate age I have a situation where many pediatric dentists are dealing with the restorative stuff only and not even talking to the parents about the airway and the, and the benefits of early treatment. And so in Australia, it seems to be that the general dentists are leading that sort of field. And, 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 and whether it's a general dentist or a pediatric dentist or a periodontist or whoever, I think everyone yeah. needs to be a bit more airway focused. And I think that's what that, uh, the COIS uh, program ha- has done. So can I, can I end this podcast by just asking you summary points for parents? Um, uh, if they have a child who is disruptive in class, you know, uh, they know that that kid also, uh, uh, if uh, they stay up one hour past their bedtime, they're climbing the wall, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What would be your take-home message to a parent 
who has a disruptive child um, uh, who's been told just straight off the bat, your child's behaviour is because they have this condition. What could they do? What would be a second avenue they could pursue to really see if that child uh, has that condition and what alternative treatments uh, to help that child get better? So um, I'm a huge advocate for filling out um, the pediatric questionnaire. And um, on our website, asappathways.com, we decided to have a major public awareness on um, children with sleep issues. Um, Once a parent fills out a pediatric questionnaire, there's a lot of alarming yeses. Um, We think that you should one, contact either your pediatrician. So if your pediatrician shuts the door on you, then contact an ENT. If an ENT shuts the door on you, then contact. um, In some places, you can actually go straight to a pediatric sleep physician. Um, I will say go to pediatric sleep physicians because adults are very different. Um, and if that shuts the door on you, then find a dentist. Now, I still think that you should meet them all because they all should be able to talk together. Um, you know, a lot of times that we see the patient before the patient um, sees um, the sleep physicians or the ENTs. Um, I think a child that has a lot of breathing issues, um, asthma, um, allergies, um, just open mouth posture. There's a reason for that. It's crazy. I was sick the other day and I couldn't sleep because I was breathing through my mouth. And I was thinking, I was like, how does somebody live like this? Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. amazing because yeah. I'm sitting like, there is no way I could sleep through the night and breathe like this. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but children do it, you know? And so um, I do think that, um, I think parents are going to drive this market. Um, I think parents are going to seek questions when the doors shut down on them, because unfortunately, there are people who think certain behaviors are normal. There are some professions that think snoring is normal, and it's not, you know, Um, but I think that parents should trust their gut. If their child isn't acting normal and what they feel is normal, then definitely continue to ask answers. Uh, pediatrician, ENT, dentist, um, you know, sleep physicians, keep on asking answers. I mean, when patients come to me, I'm usually the third or fourth consult because no one's listening to them. And it's actually, it's, it's, the sad thing is it's more common than uncommon. Um, and, you know, I hope that more and more research will come out and more and more people will, uh, more and more professionals will be more aware um, that our, the, our parents, the doors won't be shut, shut down on them. Well, Dr. Nguyen, thank you very much for um, doing this on your Friday uh, night or Friday evening. We really appreciate it. Uh, the parents will be gaining so much information and a lot of the dentists who want to now uh, follow this uh, pathway, uh, I'm sure will tune in uh, to your residency. So thank you once again. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you at one of thank the numerous you. meetings. Uh, we in Australia are quite excited because only last week we've started uh, allowing international flights, you know. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Derek, on the 18th, November 18th, we are ha- we have actually a free webinar um, and we're, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be awesome. We're basically just going to 
very, we have three small 15 minute lectures just to really go into the grit of what it is. Um, So yeah, I mean, if there are dentists that want to understand a little bit more, it's a great free webinar on November 18th. Thank you for for having me. I love it. My pleasure. For Australian dentists who I'm sure want to tune on that, the time zone will be different. Can they, can they register and watch it later? I believe so. So right now it is at, um, it's going to be at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time. So what time is it right now at your time? In Australia right now, it's a, a quarter to 10 a.m. on Saturday morning. So okay. we're kind of, yeah, we're, we're ahead by a day and an hour or something like that, I think. So it'll be on Friday for you because it's on yeah. Thursday, November 18th at 8.30 p.m. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will, uh, if you send me uh, an email, I'll distribute that to all uh, my referring dentists and yes. all my students. So happy, happy to help the course. Thank you again so much. Thank you so I, uh, much for having me. Appreciate your time. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. For more information about Dr. Mahoney's work, visit fullfaceorthodontics.com.au or visit his social media pages listed in the show notes.